Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, it's a story about Homer Hickam who ended up working for NASA. Father worked in the coal mines in West Virginia, and he wanted to be involved with space, go into space, or working in the coal mines. I think that's a pretty good analogy for the difference between our freedom in Christ and floundering in religion. It's the difference between brothers and sisters in Christ living in grace and being tied to tradition that keeps us in bondage. Religion, narrow-mindedness, is like a dark coal mine. Living in Christ provides us the ability to just discover new things, enjoy open space. At least that's been my experience for most of my Christian life. Not for all of it, but most of it. I think any church, any religious group, runs the risk of operating with a narrow mind sight that can be partisan, that is prideful, and divisive. And guess what? We've experienced it, haven't we? We've all probably experienced it if we've been involved in church more than five minutes. We've experienced it. And I think the life of the Christian is made up of avoiding the potholes that trip us up and following a a fresh move of the Spirit. That's what we desire. So, Father, you're going to have to do a work in our hearts. You're going to have to take your word, move in us in a way to where we can see clearly, that we can enjoy new vistas of of our relationship with you, and yet walk circumspectly, walk in a way that is in obedience to you, that is following after your word. Lord, do a work in us as only you can today. We need you desperately. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think Stephen in Acts 7, he's a lot like an astronaut. He's like an astronaut trying to explain space to a group of people who've been stuck in a dark coal mine. I mean, how do you do that? We mentioned last week that Stephen has been putting his foot to the gas as he concludes this sermon to Jewish leaders. And he's been replying to the charge that he's been blaspheming Moses, blaspheming the temple, blaspheming the law. Remember the context. Let's look at Acts 6. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses 
who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered us. Change the customs. God forbid that he change the customs. You know, I think some sermons die before you get to the conclusion. Some sermons never get off the ground. This sermon starts with a bang and it ends with an explosion. And here's part of his conclusion. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So here we have in just a few verses, these esteemed men of Jewish history, Moses and and Joshua and David and Jacob and, and Solomon, He hearkens back to these fathers of Judaism to make a point about how Israel worshipped. And he used the tabernacle as a way to do this. The tabernacle, remember, was kind of the mobile worship center for Israel. The temple was different. It was a stationary building that would later be built by Solomon. And so God gave to Moses the instructions for how to construct the tabernacle. It would start in the wilderness, then travel to the promised land with Joshua, and was passed on from generation to generation all the way to David. Now, it was called a tent of witness. It was a tent of witness to God's presence, to represent God's presence for Israel. Once set up, it had all of the necessary elements to make sacrifices. And the tent of witness also reminded Israel of God's covenant with them as it possessed the tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. They're in the tabernacle. So God continued to move amongst his people with a tabernacle, a mobile sign of his presence. It was not always in the promised land, yet God was still moving The fact is, Israel did fine with the tabernacle, without the temple, for 500 years, from Moses to David. Yet David asked God for a stationary temple. We read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the king is David, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. You know, we got to get God some kind of house. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? 
I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent, a tabernacle for my dwelling, in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The answer to that is no, God never said that. Now, remember what was said of David in Acts 13.22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. The reason I'm pointing this out is that David seemed to do fine with just a tabernacle. He was able to worship God freely without the permanent building. All he had was just the mobile version. God was pleased with this worshiping in the tabernacle. And he was pleased with the serving heart of David. We read David saying this in Psalm 73, 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. David was not in a temple. God even refused to build the temple with David. And yet God was with David. God was pleased with the worship of David. He gave him a stamp of approval as being a, the, the kind of worshiper he desired. He's a man after my own heart. And we know how screwed up David was, but apparently he confessed, got it right with God, wanted to have fellowship with God. It was a messy life, but God was pleased with his heart. A man after God's own heart. David's worship didn't suffer because he didn't have a temple. That's the point. And God later tells David that his offspring would build a temple. Of course, that was his son, Solomon. He would head up the construction. And even Solomon said this in 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. Solomon was aware that a temple could not contain the God of heaven and earth. The temple was built to house Israel. The temple was not built to house God. The temple would become a place where Israel sought to imprison God, manipulate him according to their own concerns. And the temple would later become a sign of Jewish exclusiveness, a rallying place of Jewish nationalism, mixing the politics with the religion. That never goes well. Religion, in this case, our relationship with God, always trumps the politics. It always comes first. I'm not saying it doesn't touch upon politics. Our relationship with God is king. He's our Lord. If the tabernacle was temporary, if the tabernacle was temporary, why would the Jews assume that the temple would last forever, that it would be permanent? I mean, they knew their history, but facts are pesky things when they rub up against flawed notions. Solomon's temple would later be destroyed, and another one was built by Zerubbabel. 
That temple was destroyed under God's judgment, and then Herod's temple was constructed. And that temple was not primarily used to worship God. It was a place to rally political support. Later, they would come under, the, under Rome and increasingly desire to be out from Rome's boot upon their neck. The temple became a rallying point for these political subversives. It was a place for people to, to take pride in their own righteousness. A place for people to come and make money as they rip people off that would come in the, in the temple area to do business. It got so bad that Jesus called the temple, what do you call it? A den of thieves. That's how abusive the religious organization was functioning of the Jewish temple. And in 70 AD, God said, no more. And Jesus had said this was going to happen. In 70 AD, it came down, not a stone upon another stone, completely destroyed. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? I mean, even heaven cannot uh, contain God. It's just merely a, a place of his throne, a royal seat for him. There's not, a, there's not a house that can contain God. There's not a temple that can box God in. It's only one of the things, even heaven is one of the things that he's made. And the earth, it's even less. It's his footstool. It's a piece of furniture. It's his ottoman to put his feet up on. You think God can be confined by, by heaven or earth? No. Then how's he going to be contained in a temple? In fact, it's a curious use of terms. Stephen says the temple was made by hands. It was the same phrasing the Jews would use of idol worshipers who made their idols by hands. And Stephen is not so subtly saying, you're no different than the pagan idol worshipers. And the passage that Stephen quotes in Acts 7, 48 through 50 is actually taken from Isaiah 66. And he leads his audience to kind of feed upon these truths I've already read, but he actually leaves out the last part of verse 2, and we can only conjecture why. I wonder if it's because he just wanted to save his breath, because he knew they were so far from what these verses say is true worship. Listen to this. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is, this is like true worship, authentic worship. This is what I'm really after. And this is what he says. He who is humble, the one who's contrite in spirit, the one who trembles at my word. That is the kind of worship I'm looking for. 
You want to know what true worship looks like? Has nothing to do with the building. Ask the modern church today, what is real worship? Oh, real worship is going to have three hymns and an organ and a piano. Real worship is going to have contemporary worship. People raising their hands. It's got to be a worship band. Real worship band. And we always get, you know, kind of programming about what it looks like. Nothing wrong with any of those things by themselves, but that's not the definition of worship. It's humility. It's being contrite. That means not demanding of God. Contrite. Trembling. Do you need fancy buildings to be humble? You don't need million-dollar edifices to facilitate contriteness. You don't need fancy PowerPoints or videos to tremble at God's word. And perhaps for us today in the modern church, we need to ask if all the extra things that our religious culture provides, does it get in the way or does it help? I mean, we always rate these things, by the way, on a relative basis, do we not? I mean, probably some of us are here thinking, well, I'm glad we're not like those big churches, you know, that have all these things that they don't need. But do you realize that at the size that, that, that we are here, it's about, you know, four to 500 people that call this their church home, a little less that come on a Sunday morning. Do you realize that we are bigger than over 80% of the churches in America? So 80% of church-going America would see us as fat and rich, living high on the hog. Probably don't think of yourself that way, do you? Kind of all relative. And maybe you're thinking, boy, you know, if we could only be like that church and have this and have that program, have those buildings. The point is, we're not to have some edifice complex. Assuming that a visible structure is what we're to aspire to, that only then can we truly worship or, or have God's blessing. <laughs> Do we really think that God is confined to a building? He transcends all of that. I hate to break it to you, but God does not need any of our programs. He doesn't need any of our music teams. He doesn't need any of our media displays. He doesn't need any of our buildings. We do these things, hopefully, to facilitate our worship of God. They're not evil in and of themselves, but they can be if we think they are absolutely necessary to worship God. And if we esteem ourselves as above any other brothers and sisters because of our buildings, because of our numbers, because of our programs, shame on us for being so arrogant to think that God is not moving in smaller things, in smaller places. You know, in many ways, I'm actually thankful that God has not blessed us with more. 
and I mean this, you know, to make us bigger or richer. You know why? There's this greater temptation, this greater opportunity for pride and arrogance. You know, when I think of my dear brothers, other pastors who have bigger churches, when I think of John Lindell, I think of John Marshall at Second, and John Lindell at James River, other churches. Those are probably the two that immediately come to mind for most of us. You know, you need to, you need to pray for them because the temptations for managing all that, first of all, and the money and the responsibility, you know, it's easy from the cheap seats to sit there and criticize. It's a lot harder when God gives you all of this to take care of and manage. Pray for these men. Now, it may not be your cup of tea, and we're free to say that. We're free to go to church wherever we want, right? But let's not look with a critical attitude as if, oh, well, they don't do it. We're more authentic because we got this or that. They don't get the real stuff because they've got all these extras there that just get in the way. It can happen, but it can happen for us right here. It can happen for a church of 50 or or 25. It's more of a thing of our hearts. And we dare not grow or think we can grow if we just follow the program, just do the right things, you know, read the right church growth books. You do these things, your church is going to grow as if you can control the train. I'll tell you what we can control, our obedience and our faithfulness to the mission that God has given us. And if you think this is just some kind of faux humility for a sermon, let me give you a dose of reality from God's perspective. 1 Corinthians 3.7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. I want you to come and speak at our church conference. I'd like to respond like this. You know what? God said, I'm not anything. I don't think I'm coming. (laughs) So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I don't think we really believe that. Well, you know, that's nice. I know you're supposed to say that. But really, if you just push hard enough, you, know, you, you just got to whip people into shape, then it's going to grow. No. You know, God has a way of humbling us when we get arrogant, does he not? Church leaders, churches, Christians who are prideful, he has a way of doing it. Just so you know, I am so thankful for what we have. I'm thankful for our facility. I'm thankful for you as a a people. It's an amazing thing of what God has done to see people's lives changed. I mean, that's amazing. And I want to see us grow in our biblical knowledge and our obedience and our love and our outreach. But we cannot let our hearts and our eyes grow jealous or develop a complaining spirit because we don't have this or that. I mean, 
What does that do to a marriage? Complaining spirit and jealousy. That doesn't help at all, right? What does that do to relationships? Kills them. You know what it does to churches? It poisons the water. If we insist on putting our attention on outward displays of righteousness, on outward displays of material or numerical increase, then I'll tell you what's going to happen. Our hearts are going to be hardened. Now, I can say the right words in front of people. And you might think, man, this is great. But if my heart as a leader is really just after growing, getting bigger, some, uh, some image trip, I guarantee you my heart would be hardened. I'm not then listening to the Spirit of God because I've got my own agenda. And that's what a hardened heart does. It has its own agenda, and it's not listening to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's trying to break through and say, hey, you got to do things differently. you got to change direction here. No, we're growing. Look how big we are. This is awesome. God must be in it. We can't be quite that shallow, I hope. We can easily descend into this dark coal mine where we can't hear the Holy Spirit, even if he were shouting to us. Now, I don't know how Stephen was speaking in terms of his volume, but I'm guessing that it was not in whispering tones when he laid this at the feet of these Jewish leaders. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised. You got to be careful who you have eye contact with when you read this passage, all right? You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. I love that last line. All of these privileges that angels themselves delivered to you and you have squandered it. Could it be that God is saying to the American church, all of these privileges I have given to you, and look at how you're squandering it. You think I'm going to measure you by your edifice? No. You think I'm going to measure you by the number of people in your building? No. You think I'm going to measure you by your programs? Absolutely not. He will measure us by the quality of the disciples that we have made. He will measure us by our obedience, by our submission to God. Three charges leveled at the feet of these Jewish leaders. The difference between their charges that they gave to Stephen and what Stephen has given to them is that Stephen supported his with history with facts, with scripture. These Jewish leaders had to lie and prop up false witnesses to charge Stephen. 
he's illustrated to them how they and their forefathers were stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and resistant to the Holy Spirit. Stiff-necked was a metaphor taken from a farmer who wanted to control his oxen. He'd have a stick with a, a, a spike at the end of it. If he wanted the oxen to go quicker, he would take the stick and he would hit the back legs of the, of the oxen and, and make it go faster. If he wanted to turn the oxen, he'd take the stick and take that spike and hit its neck, trying to turn the oxen to go in a different direction. And if the oxen was hard to control and stubborn, he was called stiff-necked. It was a term to indicate a person who was not open to instruction, one who did not respond to authority. And this was a term that was used to describe Israel several times throughout the Old Testament. Listen, I will turn to our children, our adolescents, our teenagers. Living in your parents' home, not quite a full adult yet with full adult responsibilities, submitting to authority is one of the chief things to learn in a Christian home. When your child talks back, when your child rebels, it is never cute. God has made a certain part of their body to receive instruction when there is rebellion like that. And the reason it's so important so that they can learn to respond to authority in the home is so when God speaks to them, they can respond immediately just like they should to you. Rolling of the eyes, slamming a door, saying no, those are offenses that are not allowed. Why? Because you need to respond immediately. What's it like for a Christian who the Holy Spirit is speaking to? Man, you need to address this. You should not talk to your wife this way. You should not treat that person at work this way. You should apologize for that thing that you said and you continue to ignore it. You know what you are? You are stiff-necked. We must learn how to respond immediately when God asks of us to do something. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Circumcision was a sign that an Israelite was a part of God's covenant people. The man and his family had agreed to live under the law of God, the terms of the law. But many had the outward sign of circumcision, but inwardly they were rebellious from God. They were, their hearts were far from God. So to be uncircumcised in heart was to be unfaithful, untrustworthy toward God. In other words, they had wicked affections, but outwardly they looked religious. I mean, what good does it do to appear religious, but you're hard-hearted towards God, and that describes a lot of people in churches. And Jesus had similar words to speak to the same religious group when he said this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So I think the Christian who's listening to God will address those gaps between what we do and what we should do. I mean, what we're doing and what we should do. We'll confess quickly, like David, a man after God's own heart. And he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63, 10 through 14, it tells how God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea under the leadership of Moses. But then we read in that passage, but they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. All of these things God did for him. I mean, it's the Spirit of God who convicts of sin. It's the Spirit of God who guides. It's the Spirit of God who gives us the Word, who draws us to Christ. And yet these religious leaders refused to listen to him, refused to be guided, ignored the Word of God, rejected and crucified the Messiah. And Stephen challenges them and says, Name me one prophet you have not persecuted. That's kind of like saying to a guy, name me one woman you've not abused. I mean, what an indictment. You have persecuted every one of them. They can't answer him. Why? Because they killed prophets. They chained them. They they threw them in dungeons and, and cisterns forced some to go without food, water, threatened with death, or killed others. Elijah was threatened by the, a wicked queen. Amos was insulted by a chief priest and told never to prophesy again. Micaiah was slapped in the face and put in prison. Hanani was thrown in prison. Uriah, who was the prophet, was hunted down and thrust with a sword and killed. These prophets and more were persecuted. Now, Stephen is not condemning every Israelite. Understand that. But only those leaders within his audience there who specifically opposed Jesus, the Messiah. And he's saying, you guys have clearly had a history of violence and hypocrisy. And so I I'm left thinking, all right, what does this mean for us today? What is God saying to his church? What, What can we call out from this passage? I think this compels us to take inventory of our own hearts. The issue is what is going on on the inside, not so much whether we're able to fool people. Listen to this out of 2 Corinthians 13.5. You know, we do a lot of talk here about our position in Christ, and I firmly believe that. We do a lot of talk here about our promises with God, our good, and I firmly believe that. And for every true believer, that's the case. But I think that within every church, there are probably some who play the game but have never had a genuine conversion. Listen to this. 
Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You might be able to fool others, but you can't fool God. Listen, if you have no desire to read or drink in the word of God, you have no desire to pray. You have little or no desire to serve. You don't give of your time, treasure, or talent for the kingdom of God. You've not humbled yourself before a holy God and acknowledged your sin. How in the world do you consider yourself a Christian? You are deceiving yourself. It doesn't matter how wet you are from baptism how many verses you've memorized, what positions you have held in other churches. I've heard of pastors coming to Christ. Go to seminary, start preaching, and realize they never had a genuine conversion experience. Imagine that. Test yourself. Be honest with yourself. I don't say these things to make an honest Christian doubt. I say these things to make the person who has no foundation of salvation, no fruit, to be honest with yourself and come to terms with these things now instead of waiting when you stand before a holy God and it's too late. Test yourselves. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Let's pray.